So this week on the podcast, we're going to be doing something a little bit different and turning this podcast episode into a full-blown audiobook. So today I'm recording the newest book we released entitled Mastering Covered Calls. So I encourage you to pick up your copy now. Did we mention that's 100% free? And follow along as you listen to this audiobook. Now we've included dozens of charts, tables, and graphs to help you as part of this new book. And we hope you enjoy listening or reading your copy today. You're listening to the Option Alpha Podcast from OptionAlpha.com, where we show you how to make smarter trades, learn how the stock market really works, and generate consistent monthly income. Monthly income. Now, your host and head trader at OptionAlpha.com, Kirk Duplessis. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Kirk here again from Option Alpha, working every single week to make this the most popular investing podcast offered online because it's based on one thing and one thing only, and that's helping you consistently place smarter, more profitable trades. So again, thank you so much for tuning in today on today's show, number 172. As I already mentioned, we're going to be doing the audiobook version of our free guide called Mastering Covered Calls. Now, as you listen to last week's podcast, number 171, where we covered the performance research report that we did on covered calls, this is meant to be the supplement to that in that if you don't know anything about covered calls, you've never traded them before, you don't know how to set them up, how to adjust or manage the expectations around those trades, how to use synthetic covered calls, this is going to be your go-to guide. And our hope is that this continues to help people cross over the proverbial bridge from the world of stock trading to the world of options trading. So if you listen to this podcast, you enjoy it, please let us know, give us a rating and a review. Also send this out to a friend or a family member, a coworker, somebody who's interested in trading, but hasn't yet made that transition. So I think you guys will really enjoy this reading of our Mastering Covered Calls free book. Introduction. Covered Calls are the proverbial bridge by which many traditional stock investors cross into the world of options trading the gateway or door to a new paradigm of investing that, when used correctly, offers higher returns and less risk. Yet most investors are scared away before they even take the first step. We are taught by traditional media, schooling, and decades of conditioning that the only way to invest and build wealth is via stocks, that you cannot beat the market, so why try? But what if that actually wasn't true? Wouldn't you have a moral obligation to change the way you invest if we proved that you could beat the market? We think so. The goal of this book is to help educate you on how options trading, in particular covered calls, can help transform the way you build wealth and invest your hard-earned money. You see, options trading isn't new, it just might be new to you. All you need is someone to hold your hand and help you walk across the bridge. That's a completely new world waiting for you, and I'd love to be your guide as you start or continue this journey. So let's get started. Chapter 1. Options Basics whether you're an experienced options trader or newbie, it's easy to jump right into this guide with both feet and dig right into the covered call strategy. If you're the latter, let's first make sure you have a little background info on options trading jargon, or you might quickly get confused. As such, we thought it would be a good way to start by going over a bunch of essential options basics together, including option-specific terminology. If you've already been an experienced investor and familiar with options, feel free to skip right ahead to chapter two. If not, then you'll enjoy this newfound jargon, which is unique to options trading. In either case, it's always good to go through the basics and make sure you understand the foundational elements before moving forward. So try not to skip this section if possible. Please take your time now to develop or refresh your basic options trading knowledge. Options contracts. An option contract is simply an agreement between two parties for the sale or purchase 
of an underlying stock at a predetermined price of the future. Each option trade requires an option seller and an option buyer. Typically, one option contract controls or leverages 100 shares of underlying stock. Option contracts include four additional elements, an expiration date, strike price, option premiums, and they are classified as either calls or puts. Now note, we'll often refer to stock shares as the underlying stock or underlying shares. The term underlying is specific to the world of options trading. It refers to the stock shares that serve as the base or basis for the options contract, which is created on top of the shares. Since option contracts derive their value from stock shares, we use the word underlying to describe the logical hierarchy of the option contract. The option contract is built on top of the stock. Therefore, the stock shares are underlying to the option contract. Expiration date. Options expiration is the date when the option contract for the underlying stock expires or is terminated. It's the point at which the option buyer ultimately has to decide to convert, or what is commonly referred to as exercise, their option contract into shares of the stock. Most optionable stocks have a wide variety of expiration dates. These include weekly expirations, monthly expirations, and quarterly expirations. For example, you might enter into a contract that expires in 30 days or 90 days from today. As the name suggests, the expiration date for an option contract can vary in the future so that both option buyers and sellers can appropriately match their desired timeline and exposure. As a general rule, the further out in time the expiration date is, the more valuable the option contract is compared to shorter expiration date contracts. Strike Price In any option contract, the two parties, option buyer and the option seller, need to agree on the price at which they are mutually comfortable either buying or selling stock in the future. This future price is called the strike price. It is called this because it is the price at which they strike a deal on an agreement to exchange the underlying shares regardless of the market value of the shares at the time of expiration. The strike price can vary greatly and range in prices below or above the current underlying stock price. For example, let's assume that shares of a stock for a company are trading at $95 per share. You could trade an option contract with a strike price of $105 at effectively $10 above the current market price, or with a strike price of $80, effectively $15 below the current market price. Strike prices can have increments as low as $0.50 cents to as wide as $50. Option premiums. As you might expect, there's no free lunch when trading options, and all option contracts require a premium to be paid by the option buyer to the option seller to complete the transaction. The buyer always pays the premium and the seller always receives it no matter what type of option contract you're trading, whether call options or put options, which are discussed in the next section. Option prices are quoted in dollars per share for simplicity, but more often this creates a little confusion for traders. For example, you might see an option contract price quoted as $1.45 on your broker platform. This means that the contract's value is $1.45 for each share. And since the standard contract multiplier is for one contract to leverage or control 100 shares, the actual real value of the contract in total dollars is $145. Likewise, an option contract quoted at $0.37 cents is worth $37 in total dollars. And an option contract quoted at $4.78 is actually worth $478 total dollars. Option premiums change frequently and are determined by two main factors intrinsic value, and extrinsic value, which we'll cover in more detail in an upcoming section. Call and put options. There are two classifications or types of option contracts. 
call options, and put options. Since you can choose to be either an option buyer or seller of calls and puts, we want to first walk through the rights and obligations of each scenario. As a general rule, buyers of options have rights and sellers have obligations. Keep this quick rule in mind as we move forward. Call options give the option buyer the right, but not the obligation, to purchase stock at a strike price at expiration. And because this choice to buy stock or not in the future is valuable, call option buyers pay an option premium in exchange for this right to choose. Alternatively, the premium paid by the option buyer goes to the call option seller, which now has an obligation to sell stock at a strike price at expiration or before if the option buyer exercises or enforces their contract. Put options give the option buyer the right, but not the obligation, to sell stock at a strike price at expiration. Just like call options, this choice to sell stock or not in the future is valuable. Therefore, put option buyers pay an option premium in exchange for this right to choose. The option premium paid by the option buyer goes to the put option seller, which now has an obligation to buy stock at the strike price at expiration or before if the option buyer exercises or enforces their contract. Exercise and assignment. Now that we've covered the four main elements of an option contract, let's quickly discuss the logistics of how exercise and assignment work. Exercise and assignment are the process by which option contracts are converted to underlying shares. Oddly enough, it's effectively the same transaction happening, but commonly called two different names depending on which side of the transaction you're on, either the buyer or the seller. As a reminder from a couple paragraphs back, option buyers have the right, but not the obligation, to exercise or convert their option contract into underlying stock. Therefore, the option buyer is always the one who could exercise their contract, and the option seller is always the one who gets assigned an option contract. It's as simple as that. Buyers exercise, sellers are assigned. The question you should be asking at this point is, when would an option buyer exercise their contract? The option buyer would choose only to exercise their contract and buy or sell shares at the strike price if it's financially profitable for them to do so before or at expiration. Again, pretty simple when you think about it logically. If exercising their contract would create a larger loss than the value of the option premium paid to enter into the agreement, then the option buyer would simply let their contract expire worthless. In this case, the option seller would keep the entire premium collected at the beginning of the transaction as a profit. Option contract examples. All right, we've hit you over the head enough with terminology and definitions for now. If things are getting a little fuzzy and blurred, we're going to bring all of these concepts together with a few examples. In each example, we'll highlight the option contract details and walk through the specifics of what might happen at expiration for different stock price scenarios. So let's dive in. Example number one, call option. Here's the setup for this option contract. The underlying stock is trading at $50 per share. You purchase a call option contract. The expiration date is 60 days from today. The strike price for your option contract is $57. You pay an option premium of $3. As a call option buyer, you now have the right, but not the obligation, to purchase stock for $57 per share anytime in the next 60 days. After 60 days, your contract expires and you no longer have this right. The call option seller on the other side of the trade from you has an obligation to sell shares to you at $57 if you choose to exercise your contract. So let's walk through a couple different expiration scenarios together. Remember that as an option buyer, you're in control of the choice to exercise this contract or not. Call option scenario one, stock closes at $43 per share. 
At expiration, it seems the stock to move lower from the $50 originally to $43 per share. In this scenario, the best decision would be to not exercise your call option contract. But why? Well, some simple math analysis shows that it would be financially unwise to do so. If you were to exercise your call option, you would have purchased the stock at $57 per share, the strike price, when it's only worth $43 per share in the open market. Not a smart investment. So your best choice is to simply let the option contract expire and lose the $3 premium you paid to the option seller. Losing $3 is better than losing $17 per share. The $3 premium paid to the option seller plus the negative value of $14 from potentially buying shares at $57 when they are only trading for $43. It should be noticeable at this point that call option buyers want the stock to rise significantly in value in the future. But how far does the stock need to rise to make it worth it for the call option buyer to convert the option and exercise the contract? So let's look at another scenario. Call scenario number two. Stock closes at $57 per share. So the stock rose dramatically in value and right to your strike price of $57, which is what you might have expected as a call option buyer. Kudos to you for picking the right direction, but unfortunately, the stock didn't move far enough as you would have not chosen to exercise your call option contract in this scenario. But wait, Kirk, the stock moved exactly where I wanted it to, right? Yes and no. Recall that you paid the option premium of $3 to the call option seller to enter into this option trade. This option premium is a cost of doing business and cannot be swept under the rug. We need to account for it somewhere. So what we do in our call option scenario is we add the option premium to the strike price of the option contract to get your effective all-in cost of stock ownership. In our working example, this break-even or all-in cost is $60 per share. The $57 strike price plus the $3 option premium paid. With the stock trading at $57, there's no financial benefit to exercising the contract, as you could just as easily purchase the shares in the open market for the same price as the strike price. Therefore, your best decision, again, is just to let the call option expire worthless. The option seller would still keep the entire $3 premium as profit at expiration. In this scenario, we've learned a vital new piece of information that the actual expected price for the stock or break-even point to make it profitable overall for the call option buyer needs to be at a price per share that is above the strike price plus the value of the option premium paid. Call scenario number three. Stock closes at $65 per share. So congratulations. The stock made a huge move, much higher, and well beyond your call option break-even price of $60 we just calculated in the last scenario. At expiration, the best decision would now be to exercise your call option contract. As always, the math works or it doesn't. And in this scenario, it's financially profitable to exercise your call option. Even after paying the $3 premium to the call option seller 60 days ago and purchasing the stock at a strike price of $57, you could sell the shares immediately in the open market for $65 per share, resulting in a $5 profit per share overall. The call option seller in this case would be obligated to purchase shares in the open market for $65 if they didn't own them already and sell them back to you at a $57 strike price for an $8 net loss per share on the stock. But don't forget, however, they collected an upfront premium of $3 from you, the option buyer, which reduces their overall net loss to $5 per share. As you might expect, having coming this far in the scenarios, Purchasing call options requires both a significant move in the underlying stock and in the right direction to be profitable. 
both of which are hard to predict or estimate consistently for an option buyer. But what about put options though? So let's look at a new example. Example number two, put options. Here's the setup for this option contract. Underlying stock price is trading at $50 per share. You purchase a put option contract. The expiration date is 30 days from today. The strike price for your option contract is $45. You pay an option premium to the seller of $2. As a put option buyer this time, you now have the right, but again not the obligation, to sell stock for $45 per share any time in the next 30 days. After 30 days, your contract expires and you no longer have this right. The put option seller has the obligation to buy shares from you at $45 if you choose to exercise your contract. But why would you want to sell stock when you don't even own it in the first place? What financial benefit is there in this type of trade for you? The concept seems counterintuitive, but it's really not. You see, most investors are used to a single avenue for generating profits. They buy stock at a low price and look to sell it back at a higher price in the future. Buy low and sell high. Few investors realize, however, that you can use these same buy and sell orders just in reverse to profit from a stock moving lower. When you reverse the order of buying and selling, it's called shorting a stock, and you profit from the decline in the underlying share price. Sell high, buy low. It works like this. You borrow stock from your broker to sell to someone else in the open market. You're betting on the stock moving lower and hope to purchase shares at a lower price in the future to fulfill the trading loop and deliver the shares back to the broker that you borrowed. When you do this successfully, you profit in the difference between where you sold the shares and where you purchased the shares. So let's look at a scenario with this put option. Put option scenario number one. Stock closes at $52 per share. The stock went up before expiration, but now that you are a put option buyer, this is terrible news for you. At expiration, you would choose not to exercise your put option contract. But why? Well, if you were to exercise your put option, you would sell shares at $45, which is the strike price, but you'd have to buy the shares in the prevailing market for $52 to complete the trading loop. If in this scenario, we are selling shares at $45 and being forced to buy them in the open market for $52, it's not a smart investment decision. Your best choice is simply to let the put option contract expire and lose the $2 premium you paid to the option seller. Losing $2 is better than losing $9, the $2 premium paid to the option seller plus the negative value of $7 from potentially buying shares at $52 and selling them for $45. Notice how the put options are starting to behave just like the call option scenarios, but only in reverse. Put option buyers want the stock to fall in value in the future, similar to the expectations of someone shorting the stock. I'm sure you can see where this is going based on prior option examples, but let's walk through some more scenarios just in case it's not 100% clear. Put option scenario number two, stock closes at $45 per share. So the stock fell in value as you might've expected, but still not far enough to reach your break-even point. At $45 per share, there's no financial benefit to exercising your option contract with the option seller. You could just as quickly buy shares at $45 in the open market and sell them back to the put option seller for $45, which is essentially a wash. Recall that you also paid an option premium of $2 to the put option seller. When we subtract this from the strike price, your effective break-even target for the stock is $43 per share, the $45 strike price minus the option premium paid. So the best choice again is to let the put option expire worthless and lose the $2 premium paid to the option seller. For put options, we've now learned that in order for you to make money as the option buyer, you need the stock to trade low enough so that selling the stock at $45 creates a net profit 
after paying for the option premium. This expected price for the stock or break-even point is calculated as the strike price minus the value of the option premium paid. In our put option scenario, this break-even point would be $43. Put option scenario number three, stock closes at $40 per share. So the stock closed well below your put option break-even point of $43. Things are not looking good for the stock and it's falling hard, but as a put option buyer, this is excellent news for you. At expiration, you would choose to exercise your put option. Even after paying the $2 premium to the put option seller and purchasing stock in the open market for $40, you could sell the shares immediately back to the put option seller at the strike price of $45 per share, resulting in a $3 profit per share overall. The put option seller in this scenario would be obligated to buy shares at the strike price of $45 from you. When they are valued in the open market for $40 per share, for a net loss on the shares of $5 per share. However, they collected an upfront premium of $2 from you. So the option buyer, which reduces their overall net loss to just $3. As we witnessed with the first call option example, purchasing put options requires both a significant move in the underlying and in the right direction. It's tough to predict or estimate consistently how far a stock will drop and in what time frame. There has to be a better way, right? There is, and we'll get there soon. Reversing trades. We've talked a lot so far about buying and selling shares at expiration with option contracts. However, you should understand that exercise and assignment of physical shares, as we've described in the pages before, are rare. The reality is that most option contracts are closed well before expiration by merely reversing the initial trade. Doing so doesn't impact the outcome or change the decisions you make, but rather opens up the possibility to exit or adjust positions before expiration if you deem necessary. For example, let's assume you purchase an option contract, call or put, with 30 days until expiration. You don't have to hold it all the way till expiration unless you choose to. You could quickly reverse the trade and sell the contract to someone else, which closes your position. Likewise, if you sold an option contract to an option buyer, again, call or put, You could buy back the contract from someone else and close the position, thereby removing your obligation to deal with the stock at expiration. Statistically speaking, at Option Alpha, we've only ever had to deal with assignment of physical shares less than 1% of the time in the last 10 plus years of trading options. It's something manageable and won't ever harm you as long as you're controlling your position size. We will explore this topic in more detail during our later chapter, but be aware that it's not an automatic assumption of exercise and assignment and people worry about it way more than is necessary. In the end, we hope that the examples we just went through added a lot more clarity to the relationship between option buyers and sellers and how or when option contracts could increase or lose value at expiration. In the next section, we'll dig much deeper into the factors and inputs on how option premiums are deriving their value. The goal is for you to understand how different market environments or situations impact an option contract's price or premium. Intrinsic Value Earlier in the description of option premiums, we mentioned that there are two main factors by which we determine an option's value. These are broadly categorized as intrinsic value and extrinsic value. We'll cover each of these in detail in the following section. Intrinsic value is the current and immediate value of the option contract for any strike price, which is currently in the money. Said another way, it's the value or profit should the option buyer exercise their contract immediately. Call options are said to be in the money when the strike price is below the current stock price. Put options are said to be in the money when the strike price is above the current stock price. For example, if a stock is currently trading at $100 per share, 
a call option with a strike price of $99 would have $1 of intrinsic value. If the call option were exercised right now, the option buyer would be able to purchase shares at $99 and sell them in the open market for $100. Likewise, a call option with a strike price of $95 would have $5 of intrinsic value. On the put side, the concept is the same, just in reverse. A put option with a strike price of $101 would have $1 of intrinsic value, as the put option buyer could sell shares at $101 and repurchase them in the open market for $100. Likewise, a put option with a strike price of $105 would have $5 of intrinsic value. Simple enough, right? Great. Now, any strike price that is out of the money, on the other hand, would never have intrinsic value. Exercising the option contract when out of the money would offer no immediate value to the option buyer. Call options are said to be out of the money when the strike price is above the current stock price, and put options are said to be out of the money when the strike price is below the current stock price. For example, using the same stock currently trading at $100 per share from above, a call option with a strike price of $101 would be considered out of the money and have no intrinsic value. The option buyer would never willingly choose to purchase shares at $101 strike price when they could easily just buy the shares in the open market for $100 per share. Likewise, on the put side, if a put option buyer owned an out-of-the-money contract with a strike price of $99, they would never willingly choose to sell shares at $99 when they could quickly sell shares in the open market for $100 per share. It should be clear by now that the intrinsic value portion of an option contract's premium is relatively easy to calculate and understand. The second part of an option contract's premium, its extrinsic value, is a little more complicated, yet it's one of the most important aspects of options pricing you need to understand. Extrinsic value. There's no easy way to dissect this pricing component, so we're just going to tackle this head-on. Extrinsic value represents the future time value of the contract based on the days remaining from expiration until now and the implied or expected volatility in the stock. We'll cover each of these time and volatility components individually in the paragraphs below. For now, however, let's review a high-level options pricing example to reinforce the general concepts of extrinsic versus intrinsic value components. Let's assume that our same stock from before is still trading at $105 per share. A call option contract with a strike price of $100 and expiration date 30 days from now is quoting an option premium of $6.50 per contract. Can you figure out how much of the value is associated with intrinsic versus extrinsic value? Now take your time and think about it for a minute. Recall that an options price is comprised both of intrinsic and extrinsic value. So to answer our question, it's best to first strip out the intrinsic value, which is the easiest to calculate. The value portion that is remaining becomes the extrinsic value. The intrinsic value of the option contract in our example would be $5, as this is the value of the in-the-money contract if the contract were to be exercised today. The extrinsic value would be the remaining $1.50, $6.50 as the option premium, minus the intrinsic value of $5. This is attributed to the value of time and volatility over the next 30 days. Now, take the stock currently trading at $105 per share and let's look at a put option contract with a strike price of $93 and an expiration date 60 days from now. This option contract is quoting a price of $0.60 cents per contract. It's a little bit harder, right? Not really if you really slowly walk through it. Here, the put option contract has no intrinsic value, 
as the $93 strike price is out of the money, and the put option buyer wouldn't profit from exercising their contract. So if there's no value associated with intrinsic value, then the remaining amount is purely comprised of extrinsic value attributed to the time and volatility until expiration. So in the next section, we'll unpack the time and volatility components of extrinsic value as we continue to dive deeper into what impacts an options price. Then we'll walk through option Greeks, which help us understand how option prices might change based on various market forces. Time decay. The first subcomponent of extrinsic value for an option contract is time decay. All option contracts have a finite time until expiration, which can be from a few weeks up to a few years from today's current date. You will often hear traders talk about 30, 60, or 90 days till expiration, and this refers to the amount of time before the contract expires. As option contracts, both calls and puts, move nearer to their expiration date, there is less time for them to move into a profitable zone before they potentially expire worthless. Hence, all contracts slowly see their extrinsic value erode through the passage of time as they draw closer to expiration. This erosion in value is called time decay. Time decay for an option contract moves at a progressively faster pace as the option contract nears its expiration date. Option contracts further from expiration will be worth more money, all things being equal, compared to option contracts closer to their expiration date. These further out contracts will experience minimal impacts in their price due to the erosion of time decay. The nearer the option contract gets to expiration, the larger and more significant the impact of time decay will have on the contract. Time decay of an option contract speeds up so quickly that at expiration, all that is left of the contract's value is simply the intrinsic value, if any. This is why time decay is so crucial for options traders, because it creates a constant battle between time and price. If the underlying stock price falls or fails to move far enough or fast enough, then the option contract slowly decays under the weight of time decay. Implied volatility. The second and most important subcomponent of an option contract's extrinsic value is implied volatility. Admittedly, implied volatility is the edge by which option sellers and covered call writers, as you'll learn, gain a significant advantage in the market trading. Implied volatility is the future expectation of how far a stock will move up or down by expiration. Since options have expiration dates in the future and strike prices higher or lower than the current market price for the underlying shares, it's critical that an options premium factors in the magnitude expectation of a stock price's move moving forward into the future. In the most basic terms, if implied volatility is high, the stock is expected to swing wildly in the future. If implied volatility is low, the stock is expected to swing very little and mostly stay range-bound or move sideways. Generally speaking, implied volatility impacts the premium of option contracts the same for both calls and put options. When implied volatility increases, or more simply, the expectation of future stock volatility increases, it causes an increase in the value of both calls and puts. When implied volatility decreases or the expectation of future stock volatility decreases, it causes the value of both calls and puts to go down. Using the same example we've referenced throughout, let's assume that a stock is currently trading for $100 per share. A 105 strike call option is quoted at $6.50 per contract. We might also see that the option pricing table that the stock is showing a 10% implied volatility reading. This means market participants right now expect the stock to move up or down 10% between now and expiration. This doesn't mean it can't move more or less. It obviously could. 
It just means that the expectation right now, based on all information available and the actions of market participants, is that the stock is expected to trade somewhere in a 10% range up or down. So Kirk, who comes up with this number? Well, funny you ask, because you do. Well, not you in particular, but market participants and investors just like you determine this number due to how aggressive or not they purchase call and put options. This is why it's referred to as implied volatility, because the value is implied by the actions of the market participants as a whole. So what if future expectations for volatility change? What if implied volatility goes up to 12% from 10%? Whatever the catalyst, market participants expect the stock to be more volatile in the future, and as a result, they start more aggressively purchasing options at higher prices. The call option contract then might adjust up in value from $6.50 to $7.50 per contract. Notice that the only thing that potentially changed here is the future expectation of volatility. We didn't mention that the underlying stock price nor the time until expiration changed. So you can see just how much of an impact implied volatility might have on an options price as a single component. So option buyers might be willing to pay more money for the option contract if they think a more significant move is coming in the future. Whether that move comes or not is another discussion altogether, which we'll cover later on. The key concept for now is that traders and investors bid up and bid down an options price in relation to how far they expect or believe a stock will move in the future. Keep in mind that the quoted implied volatility number could be different for each stock or ETF. Some stocks might naturally experience more volatility compared to others. An implied volatility reading of 35% on Facebook could be reasonably low for such a large tech company. In contrast, an implied volatility reading of 35% for ExxonMobil might be a very high reading for a large, stable oil and gas company. It's all relative, so we'll use implied volatility ranking to normalize the stock and ETFs we monitor. Option Greeks. When setting up and monitoring positions, traders often use or discuss Option Greeks, There are four main Greeks, including Delta, Gamma, Vega, and Theta. A common misconception is that the Greeks predict the future movement and the value of the option contract. This is not true. They are not predictive, but rather simply elements that reflect what could happen in pricing changes for different market situations. Below, I'll cover each one as we'll use some of these Greeks in subsequent chapters for covered calls. Delta. Delta measures the extent to which an option contract is exposed to changes in the price of the underlying stock. Delta values can range from 1 to negative 1 depending on the option contract you are trading and represent the theoretical change in the options price following a $1 increase in the underlying stock price. Deltas are always positive for call options and always negative for put options. This is because a $1 increase in the underlying stock price should always increase the value of a call option and decrease the value of a put option, all other things remaining constant. Delta values can also be used as a proxy for an option contract's reaction to a directional price change in the underlying stock shares. Gamma. Gamma is the rate of change in an option's delta per one-point move in the underlying stock price. You can think of gamma as an important measure of convexity or rate of change of an option contract's value in relation to the underlying continuing move either further in one direction or closer to expiration. Gamma risk or the risk of large price movements in an option contract increases as you near expiration. Vega. An options vega is a measure of impact in changes in implied volatility on the price of the option contract. 
Specifically, the vega of an option expresses the theoretical change in price of the option for every 1% change in underlying implied volatility. Keep in mind, as we discussed earlier, small changes in implied volatility could have significant impacts on an option's price, particularly option contracts further from their expiration. Theta. The last major Greek is theta. Theta is the decay of an option's price due to time. Theta values are always negative for both call and put options and will always result in zero time value at expiration. Option traders refer to it as the slow drip or silent killer of option buyers since it slowly erodes the position. As expiration approaches, theta speeds up and the rate of decay of the option contract accelerates as it runs out of time. For option buyers, theta can be the death by a thousand cuts. On the other hand, option sellers, theta decay is an important component for many income-based option strategies. Conclusion. All right, that was a lot of basics to cover, and hopefully you didn't skim through this chapter, as there are some golden nuggets in there you won't find in other options basics write-ups online. Now that we've got these covered, no pun intended, it's time to shift our attention to the option strategy very few stock traders take advantage of, the covered call. Chapter 2, Covered Calls. When introducing covered calls to new traders, we're presented with a challenge. Cover the step-by-step details on how to set it up or the overall framework on why we use them before digging deeper. While there's certainly no right or wrong way to go about it, we feel that first covering the overall framework of a covered call seems best to set the stage for our discussion. So don't worry if it sounds more complicated at first. We'll be talking in more detail about exactly how to set up a covered call and how it works later on in the book. The goal here is just to get a quick snapshot and the overview of what a covered call is broadly as a means to help build a more solid foundation moving forward. So what are covered calls? A covered call is an option strategy that combines the use of long underlying stock to cover the sale of a short call option. Yes, you are going to be selling option contracts. No, you are not going to be buying option contracts. Traditionally speaking, a covered call strategy would require that you already own the underlying stock or ETF shares in your account before selling the call option. Because you are selling a call option, this means you have the obligation, if assigned by the option buyer, to deliver the shares of stock at a strike price on or before expiration. It's referred to as a covered call because when you sell the call option, the risk of assignment is already covered given you own the underlying shares and they are in your possession. Contrast this with a naked call option, in which case you have no underlying shares to cover the risk of assignment and would have to come up with the money if the stock went against you to cover the loss. Now note, Naked call selling is nothing bad at all, as it requires much less capital than a traditional covered call, mainly because you don't have to purchase the shares of stock first. Now, we don't want you to write it off, no pun intended, as it's one of the core foundational elements of many other option strategies that don't involve stock. So, covered call payoff diagram. The covered call payoff diagram is constructed on the next page for you. The dotted blue line represents the payoff line for the underlying shares of stock. The green line represents the payoff line for a single short call option at a strike price near where you purchase long stock. The red solid line shows the combined payoff when both the long stock and short call option are combined into a single covered call strategy. Notice that the slope of the red line shifts from upward and to the right to flat and stable at the strike price of the short call option. At this junction, the gains on the long stock are directly offset by the losses on the short call option contract. However, in exchange for capping your gains on the stock, 
your break-even point or cost basis on the shares is reduced by the amount of the premium collected. This reduction in net cost to own shares increases the probability of success for the overall position. Visually, you can see this in the graph as the new payoff line for the covered call strategy in red crosses over the break-even threshold much further to the left, which represents lower strike prices. The stock could fall in price and you could still make money overall with this strategy. Who can trade covered calls? Covered calls can be traded in practically any brokerage account type, retirement, IRA, 401k, margin, etc. Since you already own the stock and therefore have one part of the strategy in place, Brokers allow you to sell a call option against that stock that you already own if you choose to do so. You'll also hear this referred to as writing a call option, which is used interchangeably with covered. The best way to think about a covered call in our view is as a strategy to pre-sell your stock shares in the future at a higher price. Sure, you could sell your shares and close the position now, but what if you could pre-sell shares at a higher strike price in the future and collect some income along the way should the shares never reach that level? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. By selling the short call option as part of a covered call strategy, you are effectively just pre-selling your shares. More specifically, you are pre-selling the right to buy shares to someone else. Straightforward enough, right? The call option buyer, in this case, is not obligated to purchase the shares from you. They are just buying the right to do so if they choose. And in exchange for this opportunity, they pay you an option premium upfront. The price at which you feel comfortable selling the shares is the strike price of the contract. The money you collect up front from the call option buyer is the option premium or the option price. So let's use a straightforward housing analogy to drive home this concept. It would be like owning a house and signing a contract for a person to buy your house, which you already own, the stock shares, at a predetermined price, the strike price, by a specific date in the future, expiration date. In exchange for agreeing to sell them your house and taking it off the market until expiration, they might pay you a deposit, option premium to compensate you in case they don't come through on their end and purchase the house. In this example, you are the owner of the underlying stock, your house, and the call option seller. The new buyer you sign the contract with is the call option buyer. Honestly, it's not any more complicated than that. So let's dive a little bit deeper into a covered call strategy and look at how and why you would set one up for your portfolio. Though we briefly mentioned it above, I want to reiterate that a key concept you need to remember when setting up a covered call is that you must already be long the underlying stock. Owning stock is known as being long the stock, and without ownership of the stock, you can't technically sell a covered call. That said, one of the significant benefits new traders see with a covered call is that you don't have to hassle with the handling of shares during assignment. If the call option is assigned, the broker simply takes the long shares from your account that acts as collateral. We'll debate these merits of stock ownership later in the book, but for now we'll assume that you want to own a bunch of stock for some reason or another. So why would you sell covered calls? As great as stock ownership is, or isn't, depending on who you talk to, the question now is about the utility of doing a covered call strategy. Why use covered calls at all? If I had to boil it down into one main factor, the main reason for using a covered call would be cost basis reduction. Said another way, by selling a short call option above where the stock is trading, and receiving the option premium from the option buyer, it reduces the cost of owning the shares by the amount of the premium. This reduction in cost basis via the premium collected moves the break-even point, or the net cost, on your stock ownership lower. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that a lower break-even point increases the probability of success and generating money and income. So how do you figure out the new cost basis or break-even point? 
Well, you simply subtract the option premium you received selling the short call option from the initial cost of the shares you purchased. Do this just once on a calculator or in your head, and you can quickly see why selling a covered call is a profitable strategy long-term when executed repeatedly. So let's go through an example. JP Morgan covered call example. In this example, we're going to practice with a simple setup. You spend $115 per share to buy 100 shares of JP Morgan Chase, ticker symbol JPM, for a total cost of $11,500. You sell a call option with a strike price of $125, which expires 30 days from today, and receive a $5 option premium, $500 of total value, from the option buyer. You now have reduced the cost of owning your shares to $110 per share, or a new total ownership cost of just $11,000. Can you immediately see how powerful this strategy is for the covered call writer, i.e. you? If the stock goes down, you've already reduced your break-even point to $110 per share. You still might lose money if the stock continues to move lower, but your overall risk is reduced because of the covered call you sold. If the stock trades sideways in a range or anywhere below $125 strike price, you keep the entire premium from the call option you sold, or $5. If the stock rallies, then you are capping your profit at just $15 per share, which is the strike price of $125 less the net cost of $110 per share. Many investors consider this last aspect of capping your returns to be one of the downsides to selling covered calls. We would remind them, however, that if you get to the point where the stock rallies beyond your strike price, you've still made $15 per share in profit in a month's time. Are you really going to be greedy about making money? Probably not. What is so exciting to us about combining the long stock with an option selling strategy, like a covered call, is that you now have multiple paths to create a successful trade. It's almost like renting out your stock shares to someone else for a set period of time until expiration, and they pay you for the privilege of doing so. And because you've reduced your cost basis on the shares, it turns what would be a 50-50 directional bet on the stock into an overall strategy that has a much higher probability of success. Think about it for a second. Do you have a higher probability of success owning JP Morgan stock at $110 or $115 per share? It's self-explanatory, right? Plus, if you own stock shares, which don't pay any dividends, it's an excellent alternative for collecting income from growth-focused companies by leveraging the power of option contracts. Now, imagine that instead of going through this process just one time, you replicate the covered call strategy multiple times each year, over dozens of years. Oh yes, you see we've only skimmed the surface because the example mentioned above was a single covered call option in a single expiration month. Imagine if you sold a covered call throughout the year for multiple years. The constant and relentless premiums you collected would slowly chip away at your cost basis in the underlying stock effectively allowing you to invest in the stock at lower and lower prices. At this point, we know you're getting excited and motivated to sell your first covered call. We've been teaching this long enough to know when the light bulb starts to turn on. Maybe you think you found the holy grail of investing. And while we don't want to dampen your enthusiasm, we do need to discuss the risks involved in selling covered calls. Because even with all the benefits of trading covered calls, there's one significant glaring downside risk to the strategy that's always present, the stock itself. It might be a hard pill to swallow for longtime stock investors, but the facts are what they are. Stock ownership is a risky and inefficient use of capital that often overshadows all the benefits of executing a covered call strategy. 
We'll discuss in a later chapter how you can reduce this risk using options. But for now, we think it's important to point out that owning stock shares still means that you carry all the downside risk of the stock falling lower in a sell-off or crash scenario. While this doesn't happen often, it doesn't mean that it won't ever happen and it won't happen to you at some point. So just be cautious of the risk. Do covered calls beat the market? At this stage, it seems we've done as much theoretical setup as we need, and it's time we shift our attention to some hard data on covered call performance. Some of you might be cynical, rightfully so, and wondering how profitable covered calls were compared to the overall index, or if the subtitle to this book, The One Hour Per Month Strategy That Outperformed the S&P, was just a bunch of hot air to lure you into downloading this book. Often in the world of investing, options trading gets bad press, or you hear that the only way to make money is through index investing but it's just not the case, and the data proves otherwise. So let us present the facts using third-party validation. Covered call performance versus S&P 500, figure one. The Chicago Board of Options Exchange, CBOE, puts together a set of benchmark indexes for different option strategies to show what the result of each strategy would be when traded against the S&P 500 index, as well as many other global benchmark indexes like the MSCI EAFE index. They include covered calls in their approach by creating a 30-delta buy-right index, which tracks the performance of selling covered calls while also being long the S&P 500 index. The ticker symbol for the index is BXMD. Each month, the index would sell a covered call at a 30-delta strike price against the S&P 500, and it kept doing this month after month, year after year. The CBOE tracked the performance going back to 1986 until 2018, and these are the results. The S&P 500 annualized total return during the 32 years was 9.8%. The covered call strategy, BXMD, on the other hand, witnessed an annualized return of 10.2%. To put this into perspective, for every $1 invested in the S&P, returned $20.85, and the covered call strategy, on the other hand, returned $23.65. Folks, that's more than a 13% outperformance, but that's not all. The numbers and data get even better when you look at portfolio variance and volatility metrics. During their research over the 32-year period, the standard deviation, or portfolio volatility, in the S&P 500 was found to be 14.9%, with a maximum drawdown of 50.95% at any given time. The covered call strategy, on the other hand, saw reduced volatility at just 12.8%, with a maximum drawdown of 42.73%. That is crazy. Not only did the covered call strategy outperform the market by generating more money overall for the portfolio, but it also created far lower volatility in your account. Now, isn't this what all investors are seeking? Better returns with fewer ups and downs in your account and more consistency? By now, it should be abundantly clear that a covered call generated an excess return or alpha above the market benchmark with lower volatility or swings in your portfolio. And while this is only one of hundreds of case studies that prove covered calls work, it's one of the most influential ones in our opinion because it was executed on the S&P 500, the very index everyone says you can't beat, that you should simply buy and hold, yet underperformed a straightforward covered call strategy. The CBOE's findings show without a doubt that options trading, when used correctly, can enhance portfolio returns while smoothing out volatility. Now note, The CBOE provides the daily and monthly data for each index and strategy for free on their website if you want to double-check the results for yourself. We included a link to the CBOE website in the appendix to this guide, as well as additional backtesting research we have performed here at Option Alpha that covers a wider array of tickers and covered call variations. 
Once you get familiar with the strike prices and expiration dates to choose, you could do this in the same amount of time that it would take you to check your Facebook status or send a text message to a friend. We said in the book's subtitle that it would take an hour to implement. We lied. It probably doesn't take that long at all. And we're assuming that you have to walk to the library, up hills, both ways, in the snow, use dial-up internet, and move with all the lightning speed of a sloth. Instead, we honestly believe that this strategy, once a month, could be set up and executed in less than three minutes. So do yourself and your wallet a big favor. Stop checking email or social media just one time during the month. Just once. Give your money, your family, your future three minutes of your time and execute a covered call or something better we'll discuss later in the book and start outperforming the market with more consistency. It's a no-brainer. Better covered call performance? As great as all the data and numbers were in this chapter, the next logical question you should be asking is, can we do better? Yes. The CBOE only gives the results of two covered call variations, a 30 delta short covered call, BXMD, and a 50 delta at the money short call, BXM, both 30 days from expiration. But there are many more strike prices and days until expiration for option contracts available to trade. So how do we know the parameters the CBOE used for their indexes are most profitable for you? Well, our research team set out on a new mission and decided it was time to analyze the popular covered call strategy from all angles. We spent many months of research examining approximately 20 years worth of data beginning in 1999 to mid-2019. Across 109 popular underlying ticker symbols and more than 5.5 million covered call trades, We found clear and convincing evidence that covered calls work best only within the context of a particular set of market environments. All right, so we have a spoiler alert though. Though the CBOE's 30 Delta buy right index did outperform the S&P, when we analyzed the performance of a 30 Delta covered call entered 30 days from expiration, we found it to perform very poor compared to other covered call setups. Does this mean the covered calls won't work? Nope, they do work. We just found more attractive settings to use. We wrapped all this research and analysis up for you in a beautiful report called the Covered Call Performance. You can find a copy of this report along with all the other backtesting research we do at Option Alpha on our website. All right, we've said too much already, and before we go too far down this rabbit hole, let's continue with Covered Calls for now and walk through the details on setting them up in your account. Chapter 3, Strategy Setup. Now that you understand the why behind covered calls, let's talk about the actual setup mechanics involved. There are several key steps to go through when setting up a covered call. In this chapter, we'll review the step-by-step process and look at a couple of covered call examples together so that it's clear how to implement them in your account. You should first understand that the entire process we are going to cover takes seconds to execute and fill in the market. The reason we bring this up now is that in our opinion, there's no excuse for not performing this in your brokerage account immediately after reading this book and our performance research report mentioned at the end of the last chapter. Every single stock investor should be executing covered calls at one point or another, but we'll digress. Here's the step-by-step process we'll follow as we progress through the chapter. Number one, own or purchase long stock. Number two, select the expiration date or the contract month. Number three, choose the call option strike price. Number four, monitor and adjust the position as needed. It seems simple enough, right? And it is, broadly speaking. But each step has its own unique risks that could cause the entire strategy to fall apart or at least not perform at the optimal level it could. So let's tackle the first three steps in this chapter, which will get you to the point at which you can place a new trade. We'll save the last step on monitoring and adjusting the position for the next chapter. 
Now note, throughout this book, we will refer to the underlying security mostly as stock ownership in a company. Most investors who transition into covered calls do so via ownership in individual stock. However, it should be noted that you can and should sell covered calls on ETFs. Please don't misunderstand our use of the word stock to mean that we only suggest initiating covered calls on individual companies. We don't. We believe that you can and should sell covered calls on any underlying you want ownership in, stocks or ETFs. Step 1. Own or purchase long stock. With so many stocks to choose from, it can be daunting to know where to start. And before we get any further, let's be clear on the following point. There's no single answer as to which stocks you should or shouldn't pick to set up a covered call strategy. It's ultimately a personal decision you have to make on your own. The purpose of this section is not to tell you which stocks to trade covered calls on. Instead, offer some key decision points that might help you decide which stocks are suitable for your account and investing profile. We believe that there are three main factors you should take into account when it comes to choosing your underlying stock or ETF. We'll briefly touch on each of these areas to give you a clearer picture of what types of information you should be looking at when choosing stocks or ETFs. Factor number one, optionable stocks and liquidity filters. By now, it should be evident that you cannot use a covered call strategy on a stock that isn't, well, optionable. It'd be like trying to drive a car without wheels. It's just not going to happen. Therefore, the easiest and quickest way to filter the possible universe of stocks and ETFs down is to first look at all availability of options. Second, the liquidity of the options contracts for each underlying. Surprising as it may seem, many companies still do not have derivative markets for options contracts. Even if you wanted to execute a covered call strategy, there might not be an options market for that company to exist. Naturally then, the first scan we run is to filter for only optionable stocks. Most broker platforms can easily do this for you in a couple clicks of a mouse, so let's continue moving forward. Once you find all optionable stocks, the next hurdle to jump over is filtering for large and liquid options markets. Liquid markets allow you to more easily enter and exit covered call positions and at better prices. This step is crucial and requires a little more digging and research, so take your time and get it right. Liquidity is a fluid thing, pun intended. What seems like low liquidity for one stock might be high for another. For example, Google and Apple are higher priced stocks which means that they don't need to sell as many covered calls on them to generate high option premiums. On the other hand, lower price stocks like Wells Fargo or Bank of America leave room for you not only to purchase more shares at a lower price, but then require that you sell more covered call contracts to capture the same premiums as selling one or two calls in a higher price stock. There's no right or wrong answer necessarily since it's all relative. So here are a couple key points to focus on when reviewing liquidity of the options market. First, make sure there are a variety of contract months available. You want to see many months of option contracts in the pricing table. Multiple months tells us there's a strong demand from investors for buying and selling options in various time periods. If the stock or ETF has weekly contracts, that's an even stronger indicator that the market can handle and support a large group of investors. Second, you want to check the liquidity of the front month expiration contracts, which expire in the next 30 days. These will typically be the most active contracts, and ensuring their liquidity is vital to a possible covered call strategy. The two metrics we'll look at specifically to judge the liquidity of a market are volume and open interest. Volume shows us the activity of the options market on a given day, and open interest shows us the depth of the market for contracts still outstanding. You might think about these two metrics as measuring the depth and speed of a market, like that of a raging river. The deeper and more active, the better. Shallow, stale markets 
that are swamp-like should be avoided and offer minimal opportunity. Ideally, there should be thousands of contracts in volume for a given day and tens of thousands of contracts in revolving open interest across multiple strike prices. For clarity, each strike price does not need to precisely have 1,000 contracts traded in volume or exactly 5,000 contracts of open interest. What we mentioned above are just guidelines or road markers you might use as you scan for possible investments. You'll learn to quickly recognize excellent liquidity by merely looking up and down the option pricing chain. If these two metrics hold up, the tight or narrow bid-ask spreads will surely follow. This means better pricing and easier fills for your covered call. To help train your eyes, we've put together some bad and great liquidity examples below. Bad liquidity examples. First up is an old favorite of ours that we often use in courses and webinars, mainly because the ticker symbol is G-O-O-D, and yet the liquidity is anything but good. In fact, it's nearly non-existent. Notice that both the volume and open interest for the closest at-the-money call options, the 25 strike price, in the next month are lifeless. Just six contracts are floating out there somewhere. Yes, the stock is optionable, but the options are illiquid. If you think this is a pool deep enough to swim, then you're sadly mistaken. Next up is NNN, a fairly large company that is held within many ETFs and indexes, as well as traditional investors. Here, we're showing the closest at-the-money call options, which have a strike price of $60 per share. Yet, once again, we see the lack of liquidity in the option contracts. Now, admittedly, it's not as bad as the previous example, but it's certainly not liquid enough either. The contract has much more open interest, but it's still far below anything we would touch. Plus, the volume reading of zero suggests at the end of the trading day when we grab this screenshot that the market for options on NNN is extremely quiet. Great liquidity examples. All right, so enough with the garbage liquidity examples. Let's review some amazing liquidity examples. Naturally, the first one we'll review are call options for SPY, which has the most liquid options market of any ETF or stock. Here we're showing the closest at the money strike price of $310 per share. SPY, in our opinion, should be your North Star when it comes to scanning for liquidity. It sets the bar very high with more than 55,000 contracts of open interest and 24,000 contracts traded today. Not this week or yesterday, today. And this is only one single call option strike price in a single expiration period. So let's pull up another example and look at call options for GLD, a major gold ETF. Looking at the 139 call strikes, which is closest to at the money, we see both open interest and today's volume in the multiple thousands. This call option isn't as liquid as SPY, but it's within our general guidelines. And so if you're trading a handful of covered calls, you've got more than enough room to get contracts filled without much of a struggle. The question now is, do you always need to trade tickers as liquid as SPY or GLD? Nope. The goal is just to distinguish between bad and great liquidity. So as long as you follow the general guidelines we presented earlier, you should find it fairly easy to enter and fill orders. Now, factor number two, fundamental or technical analysis filters. Filters for fundamental or technical analysis could have been the number one item on our list for choosing a stock. Still, we wanted you to focus on the liquidity of the underlying options because without that, it'd be pointless to review the next steps. All analysis in the world would be worthless for a covered call investor if you can't trade liquid options on your prize stock pick, right? Now, you're a pretty smart person if you've been reading this book, and chances are you've done well enough to have some money set aside for investing purposes. Most new covered call traders, therefore, are well-versed stock investors and already study or should be studying company financials and earnings reports. 
Therefore, one of the first ways you can filter the universe of stocks to purchase for your covered call strategy is to use a fundamental analysis filter. There are many hundreds of filters you can use, and we don't dare pick any here that you would want to focus on since the best indicators can vary per industry and sector. Instead, we'll list out some of the more popular filters being used for you to explore in your spare time. These include price to earnings or PE ratio, price to cash ratio, debt to equity ratio, forward PE ratio, price to free cash flow, earnings per share growth, price to book ratio, dividend yield, cyclically adjusted PE or CAPE ratio, and many more. Personally, if we were to focus on purchasing long underlying shares, we'd choose companies or ETFs with a long history of paying stable, high-yielding dividends trading at low CAPE ratios. An ETF yielding 4-5% to per year in dividends helps reduce cost basis and smooth returns over time. Couple this with a simple covered call strategy, and now you have not one, but two ways to reduce cost basis and generate income on underlying shares, which again further increases your chance of success. Multiple streams of income are always more stable and attractive in our book. Whenever you choose or however you analyze the fundamentals of a company, if you plan on owning shares for the long haul, you'd better have a solid understanding of the business, its growth, the industry they're competing in, etc. Don't invest because you love the founder or CEO. And please, don't invest because of a tweet, post online, or article you read in the newspaper. Invest for value and expected returns. Buying stock is buying ownership in the company, and you should never forget this. The second way you could filter for possible securities to purchase for your new covered call strategy is to use a combination of technical analysis indicators. Technical analysis is a method of examining past market data to help forecast potential future price movements. Using different tools, indicators, and charts, investors can often generate signals that leverage current and historical market data to anticipate a stock's future or projected path. Often this means that you'll be trading in and out of the underlying stock more often and on shorter timeframes. It likely won't be like day trading, but rather what we call position trading, in which case you might hold a stock position for a few weeks or months between entry and exit signals. During this time, you can sell covered calls to further increase your probability of success on any long stock positions you enter. Now, this all sounds very sophisticated and cool. Use some secret indicators that predict stock movements while you're sipping drinks on the beach somewhere. The truth is, is that most technical analysis indicators are terrible predictors of market direction and stock returns. How can we be so bold as to make this claim? Well, we had our research team spend an entire year testing the validity and predictive power of the top 17 most popular technical analysis indicators. We tested and analyzed more than 1,478 variations over 20 years to see what worked and what didn't. Not surprising, only a few indicators in specific settings generated reliable signals and excess returns above the market. To put even more context on this, less than 5% of all the variations we tested had predictive power in the stock's future direction, more than 50% accuracy. In English, this means that the vast universe of indicators out there, for all intents and purposes, are less predictive than flipping a coin. Of all those in the 5% bucket, only a tiny handful was significant enough for investing purposes. So what's the moral of the story for technical analysis? First, you don't have to use technical analysis to trade covered calls. Are they required? Nope. Can they help? Maybe. And if you're going to use them, it's essential that you use the best indicators and settings. Anything else could be damaging to your likelihood of success. Now, once again, we did the research for you and published all of our findings in the groundbreaking research publication called The Signals Report, which you can find on our website. Factor number three, covered call yield and return filters. 
If you've checked all the items above and find a company or ETF with the liquid options market that you want to own, the last filter is to run a couple of simulated trades. These allow us to double check the covered call yields and returns you might expect moving forward. Although you might be very excited to get going by jumping in with both feet, we highly suggest you do this simulated trading over the next couple of weeks or months. You want to get a decent idea of what the option premiums are you'll be receiving if you start selling covered calls. It might take some monitoring and you should watch how option pricing changes during a couple different expiration cycles for your target stock. Besides, if you're planning on investing in the stock for the long haul, what's another month or two or analysis to make sure that it's the right move for a covered call? We think you'll find that patiently observing a small period of time results in more confident decision making and ultimately more profitable investments. So what should you look for or what benchmarks should you use for covered call yields? As far as targets are concerned, a great guideline would be to collect around 1% premium to stock price yield per month. We use the word collect here specifically as we're referring to the option premium or option price at the time you initiate the covered call. For instance, if a stock is trading at $100 per share, you might have a target to collect approximately $1 of option premium per month on average selling covered calls. The premium that you collect may or may not be the final profit on a single position. This is a general guideline that you can use, of course, go higher or lower than this figure. As a starting point, you could sell the 30 delta call options in the one month expiration contract as the basis for your analysis. Recall that this is the setup that the CBOE uses currently that outperforms the S&P 500, though we know there are better setups we could possibly use. Once you add this to the 3-4% dividend yield per year, if your stock pays dividends, provided your stock doesn't get called away, you could be receiving a nice regular income of 15-17% in dividends and cost basis reduction overall each year. Not too shabby, right? Nope, seems pretty attractive. So there you have it, the three primary factors we believe you should review and analyze when choosing your underlying stock for a covered call strategy. We meant for this to be a little subjective on many levels, as it should be. Trading covered calls is a long-term investment in a stock, and you should always make sure it fits within your personal goals and risk tolerance levels before moving forward. In the next section, we'll help you decide which expiration date or contract month to target. So step two, select the expiration date or contract month. Now that we've got a stock picked and own shares in the underlying, we'll start using some live examples to demonstrate how you might think about choosing the expiration date in which to sell your covered call. Before we keep moving forward, we want to highlight the general impact of theta decay or time decay and implied volatility on options pricing again. Recall that an options premium or price may react differently to theta decay and implied volatility in various expiration periods. Longer dated back month option contracts erode at a slower pace than short dated front month option contracts. A call option 90 days from expiration will lose less value per day than the same strike option contract 30 days from expiration. The front month contract is running out of time and therefore theta decay speeds up as expiration nears. When it comes to implied volatility, the roles are reversed. Longer dated back month options react more to changes in implied volatility than do shorter dated front month option contracts. This is because a small change in implied volatility now, which is extrapolated out over a longer time period, could have a major impact on the expected stock price. An option contract 90 days from expiration will witness its price rise much higher on a relative basis due to increasing volatility than the same strike option 30 days from expiration. The front month contract is less reactionary to changes in market volatility, which may or may not have enough time to play out before expiration. 
given a choice, we'd always prefer to start selling call options when implied volatility is high and when option pricing is high as a result. Good so far? Great. Now let's look at some call options in different expiration months for SPY. The front month contracts expiring in September are approximately 22 days from expiration. Notice the relative option premiums of the 291 to 294 out-of-the-money calls on the right side of the pricing table. They range from $2.23 to $0.98 per contract. The back month options expiring in October are approximately 50 days from expiration. Notice the relative option premiums of the same 291 to 294 options that are out of the money on the right side of the pricing table. Those prices range from $3.60 to $2.18, significantly higher than the September contracts. The additional premium is mainly due to the additional time and volatility combined as extrinsic value given to the back month options. Keep in mind at this stage that since we are selling call options, we want to generate the highest return on the option contract as possible while also not impeding the upward mobility of the stock. We achieve this when the option premium falls quickly in value after the order entry or goes to zero by expiration. Granted, we also don't want this to happen at the expense of the stock shares crashing, but right now we are just referring to the short option contract independently of the underlying stock. So how far out in time should we sell the covered call? 22 days or 50 days? Well, it depends. It might seem like both front and back month options have benefits and drawbacks, and you'd be right. The answer is is that you need to align the expiration date or contract month with both your willingness to monitor and manage the position and the available premium to be collected. And our Covered Calls Performance Research Report will also help guide you in your decision-making process after reviewing the performance of various expiration periods. Step 3. Choose the call option strike price. Deciding the final strike price for the selling of a covered call might be one of the harder considerations an options trader has to make. Sell a call option too close with a high delta and you collect a high premium, but you give the stock very little room to move before capping your profits at a lower strike price. Sell a call option too high above the stock price, a low delta, and you collect a low premium, but give the stock more room to rally higher before you cap your gains with a higher strike price. There are risks and rewards to each style or flavor you choose, so take your time on picking what's right for you and your portfolio. At the money covered call performance, figure two. One guiding lay might be the CBOE's buy right index, BXM, which sells an at the money call option on the S&P 500. Effectively, this is selling a 50 delta call option every month, and the results prove the point of what we outlined above. The annualized return of this aggressive covered call strategy was 8.5%, with a standard deviation or portfolio volatility of 10.6%. These metrics are both less than the 30 delta option strategy BXMD and the S&P 500 itself. It proves that selling closer at the money high delta call options does help to reduce volatility in the combined strategy, but this is at the sacrifice of overall gains and performance. Naturally, there's a delicate balance here that you need to find for what works for you. Continuing with our examples, we'll again look at the same call options in different expiration months for SPY. Only now, we'll assume that you'd like to sell a covered call near a 30 delta with a target probability of success around 70%. The closest strike price to our target 70% success level in the front month contracts expiring in September is the 292 call options with a price of $1.73 per contract. 
the closest strike price to our target 30 delta and 70% probability of success level in the back month contracts expiring in October is the $293 call options with a strike price of $2.61 per contract. So which one do you pick? Tough question for sure. Ultimately, the decision is either driven by data from backtesting research or a personal decision based on your risk profile and the need for either growth or security with your positions. So here's the trade-off you need to consider, which might help steer you in the right direction and decision-making process. If you sell the front month options, you will collect a lower premium at a strike price that's only $2 above the current market. In exchange for the lower premium and higher risk of the stock breaching the strike price, the stock only has 22 days until expiration and time is running short. If you sell the back month options, you collect a higher premium at a strike price that's $3 above the current market price. In exchange for this higher premium and further out strike price, the stock has now more time to move against you, 50 days until expiration. Conclusion. If you follow the first three steps outlined in this chapter, you're now ready to enter your first covered call trade officially and choose your target point. With all the pieces together, the process of actually placing the order in your broker platform should be relatively straightforward. You already own the stock or are purchasing it. You have selected your target expiration date and strike price of the call option as outlined above. Now place the order and turn the page. If you still need help or have questions, please reach out to our team at Option Alpha. Chapter 4, Position Management. If you've reached this chapter, you should have your new option strategy executed and working its magic. In essence, you've made it. You're an options trader now. Earlier in this book, we reviewed the overall strategy of a covered call, proved using CBOE data that they can outperform the major stock market index, and finally helped you determine the right expiration months and strike price ranges to target. And since you're on a new level with your trading, we'll assume that you're also smart enough to know that it's not always roses and sunshine trading covered calls. Stocks do move down from time to time. Shocking, right? So what happens now? Now that you've got this covered call strategy working, how do you manage or adjust the position if it starts to go wrong? First, don't worry. We wouldn't have carried you this far to abandon you now. In this chapter, we're going to take a look at all of the different scenarios that could happen with a fully executed covered call position and how you should react or adjust your position if necessary. Remember to always take your time and work slowly through this process. There's never a need to rush through. Note, in the Options Basics chapter, we walk through a similar framework, but at that time it was explicitly dealing with a single, long call and put option. In this example, we'll approach this from the standpoint of a fully executed covered call investor. To help build some context for our discussion, let's assume the following options pricing table exists for the ticker symbol EWW, the iShares MSCI Mexico ETF. With this pricing table in front of us, we'll also assume the following covered call strategy has now been executed. The ETF is trading currently for $51.73 per share. You purchase 500 shares at $51.73 for a total cost of $25,865. Your target for the covered call is the 30 delta strikes representing 70% probability of success. You sell the 52.50 strike call option for $0.89 cents in option premium per contract. You sell five contracts that covers the 500 shares you just purchased. The call options expire in 22 days from today. The cost basis on the shares of the ETF is now reduced to $50.84 because of the premium you collected. The total premium of $445 of total dollar value is subtracted from the original total cost 
for a new net cost of stock ownership of $25,420. You have reduced your cost basis on the EWW shares by 1.7%. Now that you've got your trade set up and working in EWW, there are five possible outcomes and corresponding potential actions you could take. Where appropriate towards the end of each section, we'll also suggest ways to hedge or adjust the trade to reduce risk. So let's start with the best possible outcome. Outcome number one, stock rallies above strike price. One of the most common concerns options traders have when setting up a covered call is what happens when the stock, EWW in our example, rallies above the strike price of the short call option you sold. Does this mean that your shares will be called away or exercised and assigned immediately to the option buyer? Should you buy back the short call option and keep the stock position or let the stock be called away? Well, there are several points we need to cover to answer these questions. First, the most important thing to understand is that just because EWW rallies higher does not mean you will automatically lose your long shares. Most assignment of stock by the call option buyer happens the week of expiration, and more specifically, the last few days of expiration. At that point, the option contract has little to no extrinsic value left. So if the stock rallies above your strike price, but you still have 20 days till expiration, there's a high probability that you will not get assigned by the option buyer. With 20 days left, there's a decent amount of extrinsic value in the contract, and the option buyer would forfeit that extrinsic value by assigning the option contract early in exchange for the shares. They won't do this because it would be financially unwise to do so. However, If you were to wait right up until expiration and the stock is still trading higher than your strike price, then you are at greater risk of getting the stock assigned and called away. Now let's assume for whatever reason that your EWW shares are executed and assigned to the option buyer. You no longer own the underlying stock. Well, remember when we mentioned earlier in this book that this might be one of the best case scenarios. Having your stock assigned is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it might be the ultimate goal because after all, you wanted the stock to rally higher, didn't you? That said, some people get really upset that they didn't participate in the new higher stock price above the strike price level. And we understand that concern, but these strategies have capped upside potential profit in exchange for a much higher probability of success. You can't have your cake and eat it too. The profit you received is limited to the difference between the 52.50 strike price and the 51.73 stock price when you purchase the shares, plus the credit received from selling the -the out-of-the-money covered call at 89 cents. If EWW rallied well above your 52.50 strike price and your stock is assigned, you just captured all the potential profit possible in a single expiration period. So go ahead, pat yourself on the back. The reason you got paid a premium in selling a call option, $445 in total, is because you forfeited your right to any profits on the stock beyond $52.50 as the strike price, and that's okay. Hitting lots of singles as opposed to swinging for home runs is an excellent strategy for generating consistent, reliable income. And well, higher overall returns with less risk in the process. Need a refresher? Go back to chapter two and reread the performance of covered calls versus the S&P. Outcome number two, the stock rallies but stays below your strike price. This outcome is the second most favored among covered call traders. If EWW rallies but the shares remain below your strike price of 52.50 at the end of the expiration cycle, then the option contracts expire worthless and you don't need to do anything. As the call option seller, you get to keep the $445 premium you collected from the option buyer as profit. And you also get to keep your long shares of stock since the stock never breached the strike price. 
the stock value increased and you kept the entire option premium as profit, win-win. Now go ahead and sell another covered call and repeat the process all over again next month. Outcome number three, stock moves sideways. A highly likely scenario is that EWW trades in a sideways range around your original entry price. Remember that markets are both cyclical and relatively random. Maybe a couple up days here and there, some down days on other days, ultimately moving sideways with no clear direction. If this happens, then this outcome is probably the third best you might expect. At expiration, you didn't lose necessarily any value on the stock you own, but you also get to keep the entire $445 option premium as profit from the short covered call. Sure, you didn't see the stock rise in value in this scenario, yet you got paid for waiting around and selling the covered call and reducing your cost basis on the shares in the process. Now you can reestablish a new set of short call option contracts in the next expiration month and again, repeat the entire process. Outcome number four, stock trades lower and continues falling. So let's be honest, rational adults with each other for a moment. There's a 50-50 chance that your beloved EWW shares go down at some point during your covered call cycle. Yes, this means that not all stocks go up and it will happen to you at some point. But since we are selling covered calls, you're doing yourself a big favor when it comes to the cost basis in this unfavorable scenario. Because you sold a call option for a premium, your new break-even point or cost basis on the stock was lowered to $50.84 per share. Therefore, the stock could effectively drop from $51.73 to $50.84 and you would not lose money overall on the combined option strategy. Any drop below $50.84 and you would lose on the overall strategy due to the decline of the underlying stock shares. At expiration for this fourth outcome, the short call option is now far out of the money and will expire worthless, freeing you up to reestablish another short, possible at a closer strike price in the next month. All that being said, you should continuously reevaluate the EWW position and make sure you are still comfortable owning shares. The cost of owning shares takes up the bulk of the capital for the position, and therefore the stock itself is the most critical factor to monitor. If you decided you wanted to sell the stock, you need to first close and buy back the short call option or wait until your option contract expires. Exiting the stock position while leaving the short call option open and working would expose you to a naked short option position. This translates into potentially higher margin requirements and additional risk you may not want to take. Outcome number five, stock has an upcoming dividend. This scenario is specifically only to those stocks and ETFs that pay dividends. In our example, we selected EWW specifically because it does pay dividends quarterly, in which case we can walk through this scenario without changing ticker symbols. Before we go any further, please understand that dividend payments and early assignment as a result of dividends will not occur as often as you might think. You should always be aware of when your stock or ETF pays monthly or quarterly dividends, not only because you'd want to collect this money as the stock owner, but it also could be at risk of early assignment. So how does this work and why should you care about dividend payments and dates as a covered call investor? Well, let's discuss. When a stock or ETF like EWW is about to pay an upcoming dividend, the risk of early assignment increases dramatically. The kicker is that the risk of early assignment only impacts call option prices that are deep in the money. These would be call option strikes that are below the stock price at the time. These contracts could potentially be a risk of early assignment because the call option buyer on the other side of your trade might be motivated to exercise their contract early. The call option buyer would choose to do this in order to purchase shares from you and collect the upcoming dividend payment. Seems rational, right? 
But how can you tell if a particular strike price, say 5250 like our example, that you are holding is at risk of assignment? It's straightforward actually, so we're going to go through it. To determine if your short call option contract is at risk of early assignment, look at the price of the corresponding put option contract at the same strike price, 5250 in our example. Short call options are at risk only when the value of the corresponding put option at the same strike price of 5250 is valued less than the dividend payment schedule. You should reread that last sentence again, potentially two or three more times because it seems much more complicated at first, but it's actually a very fundamental concept. The short call options are at risk only when the value of the corresponding put option at the same strike price of 5250 is valued less than the dividend payment schedule. The question naturally then is, what does the put option strike price have to do with our covered call position? Now think back to the first chapter on options basics and recall that the goal of an option buyer on the other side of your contract was originally to take a risk-defined bullish position in EWW stock. Their risk was limited to the premium they paid you of $445 and in exchange they get all the upside potential benefit beyond the 5250 strike price and their respective break-even point. So if they are now interested in assigning the option contract, they would only do so when they can use the money collected from the dividend to immediately purchase a put option at the same strike price as the original call option. It sounds complicated, but it's actually not. The call option buyer is willing to go through the exercise process and assign the shares. However, they're only willing to do it if they can use the money collected from the dividend to create another risk-defined position again. Holding long stock shares while also purchasing a long put option for protection is the same synthetic position as a single long call option. It's the same payoff diagram, just constructed with different components. In this case, all the call option buyer would do is use the money from the dividend payment to finance or pay for the purchase of a put option contract protection against the new stock shares. So let's walk through an example assuming that EWW is now trading at $55 per share, making your 5250 strike call option an in-the-money position. This week, EWW announced it will be paying a $0.35 cent dividend per share. On the day before the stock trades X dividend, the corresponding put option at the 5250 strike price in the same expiration period as your short option contract is now trading for $0.30 cents per contract. In this scenario, you would be at risk of early assignment for your call option contract, and here's why. The call option buyer could exercise the option contract, purchase shares at 5250 strike price from you, get paid the dividend of 35 cents per share, and use 30 cents of it to immediately purchase a 5250 strike put option contract for protection. Effectively, this gets them back into the same risk-defined bullish position in EWW, only now a little richer by $0.05 cents per share. Bing, bang, boom. They converted everything over from one option contract into a combined strategy of a long stock and a long put option. Alternatively, let's assume that the same stock price setup exists as above, only now the corresponding put option at the 5250 strike price is trading for 50 cents per contract. In this scenario, the call option buyer would not exercise their contract and assign shares. It would cost them more money overall to buy shares at 5250, collect the dividend payment of 35 cents, and then pay 50 cents to purchase a put option for protection. 
it would be financially a net loss. Plus, they are better off just to keep the call option contract and forego assigning you the call option seller. Now, it should be evident now that not all in-the-money options are assigned just because they're in the money. This is a common misconception about the early assignment of a short call option as the result of a dividend. Just because your option is in the money in the time frame of a dividend payment does not mean that you are at automatic risk of assignment. It's only if your call option contract is in the money and the corresponding option at the same strike price is valued or priced less than the dividend payment. So have a look at your broker platform on the day of X dividend to check and see if you're at risk of assignment or not. If you are at risk, then you can either choose to close out the call option contract or roll it to the next month, discussed next in the chapter, where option premiums are higher. Assignment happens on the day the stock goes ex-dividend, so make sure you know when this is so you can be one step ahead and not caught off guard. Covered call adjustments and rolling. It's easy to sit back and watch the profits roll in as the stock you're trading rallies higher during the expiration month. This happens about 50% of the time and requires no effort on your part. So yeah, go ahead, keep kicking your feet back and sipping your chilled drink. The other 50% of the time, the stock falls during your expiration period. And when this happens, there are a couple ways to adjust and manage the position to reduce risk. Now, no, we're not talking about fully turning the position around into a winner all the time, but instead taking a potentially significant loss and trying to cut it down into a smaller loss. The first way to reduce risk is to adjust the covered call strike in the same expiration month by moving it closer to where the stock is trading. You may often hear the phrase rolling down, which is just a fancy trading jargon that means closing one strike price and reopening another lower strike price, typically in the same expiration month. Using our primary example from the chapter, let's assume EWW dropped to $49 per share below your $50.84 break-even price. At this point, your short 5250 call option, which you sold for $0.89, might drop in value to just $0.20 each. You could then choose to replace these 5250 call options and close them for a quick $0.69 profit and immediately resell a closer call option strike price, say $51 as a strike price. That is now quoting a price of $0.70 per contract. The net impact of adjusting your call option strike price lower is that you took in an additional net credit of $0.50 for each option you rolled down. This reflects the premium received from selling the 51 calls at $0.70 and buying back the 52.50 calls at $0.20 each. Your new overall credit for both option sales, the original entry and this new adjustment, is now $1.39 per contract, or $695 in total dollars. The real magic when using this type of adjustment technique is that you are taking advantage of the downward move in the market by increasing your overall credit. The adjustment reduces your cost basis on the EW shares even lower and moves your break-even point down to 50.34 from 50.84. With the stock trading at 49, you're within striking distance of a profit on any small rally in the shares. Yes, at the moment, you're still losing money, but had you not executed the adjustment, you would be down even more money as your old break-even price was 50.84. The new break-even price is 50.34. Pretty cool, right? And you can keep rolling down your call strikes as needed during the expiration month multiple times if you want. Now, the second way to adjust covered calls is to roll the existing call options from the current front month expiration 
to the next or further out back month expiration. In this adjustment example above for EWW, we rolled the call option strike prices down from one strike to another strike in the same month. In this second adjustment technique, we are instead rolling the call option strike out in time to give the stock more time to recover potentially. You'll often find that rolling out in time to the next expiration month accomplishes the same goal of collecting additional credit without having to sacrifice your upside potential selling a closer call option strike. This works because the option contract with more time until expiration is more valuable, all else being equal. So you might find that the same strike price of $52.50 in the next expiration month pays the same amount of money as a closer strike price at $51 in the front month expiration we just analyzed. The process of rolling the call option out in time is the same mechanically as it was for rolling the call option down. You simultaneously buy back and close the $52.50 call option that expires in 22 days while reselling a new short call option at the same $52.50 strike price in the next contract month that expires in 50 days. The trade-off is that by rolling a call option out to further expiration months, you might have to wait longer for your profit on the premium to be realized. On the other hand, because you didn't move the strike price of the call option lower, you're leaving room for the stock to rally. Conclusion Whatever method you favor as you start monitoring and adjusting covered call positions, recognize that being proactive is crucial. When the stock drops and you roll your short call option either closer and down or out to the next month, it allows you to increase your overall credit in the position and ultimately reduces risk. Is one technique more favorable than the other? Not really. There's no perfect answer and each situation is going to be a little bit different. As always, you have the option, pun intended, as to which adjustment technique seems to be most appropriate for you. Chapter 5. Synthetic Strategies What if I told you that as much as you might have fallen in love with covered calls, during our amazing, self-admittedly, blueprint in the last couple of chapters, there were better alternatives, alternatives that required less money to get started and perform practically the same, and in some cases, much better long-term. Alternatives that gave you the ability to diversify across more stocks and ETFs and leverage the full power of options. Starting to salivate yet? Well, it's true, and we'll show you how. In this final bonus chapter, we'll explore the two main alternatives to trading covered calls without the requirement of purchasing the underlying stock. Yes, you don't have to outlay thousands of dollars to buy stock to trade a covered call strategy. Together, let's examine these alternatives we'll refer to as covered call synthetic strategies. Synthetic strategy number one, leaps options. The first synthetic covered call replaces long shares of stock with the purchase of a single deep in the money call option in a far dated back month expiration. This type of call option contract is commonly referred to as a long-term equity appreciation security or leaps. It acts as a synthetic in place of purchasing underlying stock or ETF shares. You might also hear people call this strategy a poor man's covered call or a skinny covered call, as well as many other names, but the concept is the same. Instead of purchasing 100 shares of stock, purchase a single one deep in the money call option that controls 100 shares and replace the stock position for far less money. So why do this? Well, there's no debating that the capital requirements for stock ownership can be incredibly high. For example, the Russell 2000 Index ETF, ticker symbol IWM, is currently trading at approximately $172 per share at the time of this writing. To purchase 100 shares of IWM, you would need to invest at least $17,200, 
a figure that is 70% higher than the average brokerage account opening balance in the US. All that money so you can sell one covered call against a stock while still carrying the full downside risk of the market moving lower? No thank you. It seems like a lot of risk, and in our opinion, to gamble on a single ticker that may or may not work out. We sure hope that you can see our hesitation, obviously, with stock ownership. If we agree then that stock ownership may not be the most cost-effective way to build a covered call strategy, what else can we do to replicate 100 shares of stock? We could use an option contract, of course. Remember that every one option contract controls 100 shares of stock. Specifically, we could purchase a call option with a high delta value, which would replicate similar performance of the underlying stock without having to buy the shares outright. This is where leaps are used by sophisticated options traders to create a covered call synthetic. As mentioned, leaps are long-term or back-month expiration contracts. How far out in time exactly? Well, that's up to you to decide. Generally, an expiration of more than six months out from today's date is a reasonable basis for starting to analyze a synthetic position. If it's currently January, then you might look to purchase call options in July or further out in November if you wanted to. The further out you are buying the call option leaps, the more expensive the option contracts or premium will be, but the more time you have to see the stock move favorably for you. Once you identify the expiration month you are comfortable trading, you'll look for a deep in-the-money option strike price to purchase. Recall that a call option is deep in the money when it will have a strike price that is lower than the current stock price. The deeper in the money the call option strike price, the lower the strike price from the current stock price, and the more the option contract will behave and trade as if it were underlying shares. Thankfully, we can use the option Greek delta to help us estimate how reactive a particular call option strike price will be to a $1 move in the underlying stock. A call option with a delta of 50 will behave as if you owned 50 shares of underlying stock. Your single call option contract still controls 100 shares of stock at expiration, but the day-to-day price movement of the option contract moves as if you owned roughly 50 shares of stock. Call options with a delta of 70 will behave as if you own 70 shares of underlying stock. Ironically, because we know where your mind is going already, deltas of 1 do not exist until you get much closer to expiration due to the extrinsic value of leaps. Therefore, we want to potentially target deltas around 0.8 or 0.9 whenever possible, so 80 or 90 deltas. This will give you the ability to replicate 80 to 90% of the stock move with a fraction of the cost compared to purchasing the shares outright. Pretty amazing, right? So sticking with the IWM example from earlier, let's look at a leaps setup in an expiration seven months out from now at the time of this publication. The options pricing table for IWM is shown on the following page for the call options which expire in March of next year. Now notice how different the option prices are from contracts thus far in the time that we've seen earlier in this book. The 155 strike call options, which are well below the current share price and considered deep in the money, are at a 0.80 delta, or an 80 delta, and are trading for 2092. In real dollar terms, each call option contract would cost $2,092. Now, Let's pause here before we go any further and look at the trade-off between buying the stock outright and buying this deep in the money call option. The cost of 100 shares of IWM would be $17,200 versus the cost to purchase a single deep in the money call option of just $2,092. 
which controls the same 100 shares. That's an 87% discount on the cost of purchasing the shares. As far as capital efficiency is concerned, we don't need to say more. Plus, there's an added benefit embedded here that we haven't really even discussed, and that's black swan or crash risk. What if IWM crashes? What if the stock price goes down 20% this week and trades at $137 for the next seven months out? Does stock or a long-call option give you more protection? Your option contract has defined and limited risk, whereas the stock carries all of the downside risk of a market crash. Trading the call option contract would only leave you exposed to a $2,092 loss or the value of the option contract and nothing more. Holding long shares of the stock during a 20% drop would yield a loss of $3,440, assuming IWM doesn't keep falling. Do you now understand why trading and investing in underlying stock is so inefficient for investors? It's a poor vehicle for controlling and managing risk. With the deep in the money call option at $155 strike price now acting as our synthetic stock position, then the only remaining step to complete our covered call strategy is to sell the front month out of the money call options above where IWM is trading. Using the pricing table for the expiration 22 days from today, we might look to sell the 176 strike for $1.38 per contract. This additional premium reduces the cost basis on the price of the deep in the money call option we purchased from $20.92 to $19.54 overall, a 6.59% reduction in cost. So there you have it, a synthetic covered call position using leap options with a fraction of the money invested and significantly lower risk. And when expiration comes in 22 days, just resell another out-of-the-money call option in the next front month contract while holding the same deep-in-the-money call option in further out expiration months. Repeat these mechanics every month moving forward to maintain the synthetic position. Now, freeing up the additional capital with this one synthetic gives you much more flexibility to diversify your portfolio with other covered call positions or hold cash in reserve. It always fascinates us that more investors don't think about options in this term or use them in this manner. The math and the numbers certainly don't lie, but that's why we're writing this book after all, to help guide and educate you on the choices available. Now, are you ready for an even better strategy than the one presented above? Oh yes, I've been saving one of the best for last. Enter the pure option seller. Synthetic strategy number two, short naked put options. The final and absolute best synthetic alternative to a covered call strategy is to sell short put option contracts. Now, just mentioning the idea of trading short naked options strikes fear into many traders as they are inherently associated with being high risk and foolish. And on the contrary, we believe that the data supports that stock ownership is high risk and foolish. Whatever prior connotations or beliefs you held about trading naked, undefined risk or uncovered strategies leave them at the door for a couple minutes. We need you and your portfolio needs you to keep an open mind about this as we walk through the setup once again. Remember, the numbers don't lie on which strategy ultimately generates the best return metrics and carries the least risk. Now, before we reveal the performance of selling short puts to trading covered calls, let's discuss how and why this acts as a synthetic alternative. To understand any synthetic strategy, you need to understand the payoff diagram of the core or traditional covered call option strategy shown again below. 
Recall from previous chapters that a covered call strategy purchases long stock and sells an out-of-the-money call option above the market price. The blending of these two components creates the red payoff line shown, an upward sloping payoff line until the strike price of the short call option, then a flat payoff line at any strike price level above that. It makes rational sense why the red covered call payoff line flattens or levels out at the strike price anywhere above that level for the short call option. At that point, the stock gains are offset on a one-to-one ratio by the short call option you sold. This is the trade-off for executing a covered call strategy. Limited upside potential beyond your strike price in exchange for a higher probability of success overall by collecting an option premium and reducing your cost basis on the stock. To create a viable synthetic position that mimics the covered call strategy, we ideally need to find an option strategy that generates the same payoff line shown to the left And if that strategy generates the same payoff line, then we can use it as a reliable synthetic, assuming it has better risk-to-reward profile. As it turns out, a short naked put option creates precisely the same payoff diagram as a traditional covered call, upward sloping to the right, then levels off at some value representing the same defined profit or limited upside characteristics of a covered call strategy. Now, depending on the strike price of the short put option contract, the payoff diagram will be nearly identical to that of a covered call. Crazy cool, right? So with this new synthetic starting to take shape, let's look at an example using the same IWM position we used earlier. To collect as much premium possible and to mirror the payoff diagram of the covered call, let's sell an at-the-money ATM or near-at-the-money short put option. The 172 strike price is currently at-the-money. It's quoted as $175 per contract and expires 22 days from today. To complete this synthetic trade, all you need to do is sell a single one put option contract and do nothing else. Don't purchase the underlying stock. Don't buy deep in the money call options. Just become the option seller of the 172 strike put option. That's it. But Kirk, how can we sell something we don't even own yet? Well, great question. And it brings up some very critical points. First, you have to change gears here mentally a little, and now think about the impact of this short put option contract from both the buyer and seller perspective. Fire up the old brain cells from the options basics chapter about rights and obligations of option contracts as opposed to traditional stock investors' mindset of buying and selling shares. A put option buyer purchases the right, but not the obligation to sell stock at 172 strike price before expiration. The put option buyer pays an option premium, $175 in this example, for the right to choose. If you are now the put option seller in this example, you collect the $175 premium and have an obligation to purchase stock from the option buyer at $172 strike if the shares are assigned at expiration. Easy so far and should make logical sense. Next up is the slightly confusing part, or at least until you read the next couple of pages. Since this is an uncovered or naked position, it means you are not required to own the stock when you enter this trade. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking right now. Hold up, Kirk. So what happens if I'm assigned and need to buy the shares from the put option buyer? So if you were assigned, you would purchase the shares from the put option buyer at the strike price of $172 per share. If you didn't want to hold the shares or continue to own the stock, you could immediately sell the shares back in the open market at whatever the stock is trading at at the time, say $171 per share. You would have a net loss of a dollar on the stock shares since you had to buy the shares at $172 when they are only worth $171. But you forgot about something important. 
when you account for the option premium you collected of $1.75 initially on the sale of the put option contract, your net profit is still $75 per contract, even after assignment. Do you see what happened? You made money even when the stock traded lower because you collected the option premium as the option seller. At this point, it might seem like selling the put option is too good to be true. You collect a nice option premium up front from the option buyer, and you don't need to own the stock. Effectively, no money out of your pocket to initiate the position. In fact, you're getting paid to initiate the trade. So what's the catch? What could go wrong? Well, let's discuss. Understand first that dummies do not run brokers and the options exchanges. You wouldn't lend money to someone you knew had no means to repay a loan, would you? Now, the same general principle applies in the options market. The brokers and exchanges are fully aware of the risk associated with any position or options contract. They wouldn't let you sell a single put option contract without making sure you have enough capital to cover the risk should the position go wrong. When someone decides to sell a naked, undefined put option contract, the brokers have to determine an effective way of mitigating the risk to approve the trade while also not requiring you to purchase the stock. So how do they do this? They calculate what is called margin requirement. You can think of margin requirement as really just a fancy way of saying that you need to have reserves that are set aside in your account to cover the potential loss on your short put option position. They don't take the money out of your account. Instead, they earmark a specific dollar value to the trade and reduce their remaining funds available for new trades. The amount they will hold in margin depends on the broker and your account type, but let's assume for simplicity it's roughly 20% of the value of the underlying shares plus the option premium collected. Using our IWM example, if the stock is trading at $172 per share and you were willing to sell the $172 put option for $175 per contract, the margin that would be required to execute this trade would be approximately $3,615. The stock price of $172 times 20% plus the $175 option premium. Again, this money is not taken out of your account, but rather reduces your available funds for trading to ensure that you have enough money to cover the risk of this position until it's closed or expires. If your brokerage account has a starting balance of $10,000, your broker would earmark $3,615 for the short put option trade, which leaves you with $6,385 in available funds for other trading activities. Note, the figure referenced above is just the initial margin that's required to enter the position. The ongoing margin requirement needed to cover the risk goes up and down depending on the stock price, implied volatility, and option pricing. For this reason, we highly suggest you keep short option contract trading like short put options to a minimum in your account and keep their position size small and manageable. We always suggest of using short put option contracts on account sizes more than $25,000. If you have an account that's less than $25,000, we would suggest that you avoid using short put option contracts. Even with higher account values, we definitely suggest using credit spread alternatives as a way to help curb and manage risk. As always, too much leverage can and will blow up your account if it's used incorrectly. At the money, short put performance, figure three. At this point, we've talked at length about the capital benefits of selling short put options. And while all of these efficiencies point from a capital usage standpoint have merit, The real question is, how does these short put option contract strategies compare to the S&P 500? If a short put option performs worse than directly buying and holding the market index, there's no point in trading it. Remember the research 
that the CBOE did from earlier chapters. Well, they also tested the performance of trading just a single short naked put option referred to as the put right index with the ticker symbol PUT. And it generated nearly the identical annualized return with dramatically less risk and volatility in your portfolio compared to the S&P 500. If that wasn't enough, the put selling strategy also saw higher sharp ratio, Sortino, and alpha metrics than the S&P and the buy right indexes that tracked covered call strategies. In figure three, you'll notice that the trajectory of the put strategy was both more stable and continued to outperform the market in most periods. Since the goal of the put strategy is market-like performance with less volatility, we would expect the strategy to underperform slightly in bullish markets, but outperform dramatically in bearish markets. This is exactly what happened and should continue to happen in the future. Plus, the more efficient use of capital for a short put option frees you up to diversify into a wider basket of ticker symbols. Selling short put options generated an annualized return of 9.54% per year with a standard deviation or portfolio volatility of just 9.9% versus 14.9% for the S&P 500. The maximum drawdown was also much lower at 35.5 versus negative 50.9% respectively. That's a 33% reduction in portfolio volatility and 15% more money during the market crash scenarios. No matter how you slice it and dice it, option selling was a superior strategy when analyzing all facets of an investment portfolio. Short put options witnessed higher returns, dramatically lower risk, and portfolio volatility with a fraction of the capital exposure of long stock. So why was this the case? First, it might have seemed on the outside that the synthetic covered call via the leaps offered a cheaper protection cost-wise than the short put option. And while that would be the case in some contract months, the additional transaction costs and structure of the leap alternative was a drag on performance. The leap alternative required more transactions, at least one more to purchase the deep in the money call option, and another to sell the out of the money call option in the front month expiration while the short put option only requires one transaction. More transactions means effectively more transaction costs, potentially commissions paid to brokers, which drags performance. Additionally, since leaps are a combination of option buying and option selling, the net effect of time decay or theta decay on the position was slowed, leading to potentially longer holding periods. Second, selling option premium has been proven both in our research as well as many others to offer a reliable and statistical edge over option buying strategies due to implied volatilities over expectation of option pricing. When options are priced, the implied volatility that market participants expect in the stock's future movement is overstated in both directions long term. People assume that stocks will move higher or lower than they actually do. This creates a misconception in option premiums, similar to that of insurance contracts, which benefit those who are net option sellers. Conclusion It's often been said that people don't know what they don't know. In the case of naked, undefined risk option selling, most investors associate them with having insanely high risk and high volatility in their accounts because of what they have read online or heard in the news. But when you look at the data, particularly from third-party sources like CBOE, the assumptions that put option selling is risky is just not supported when controlled appropriately. Now again, we highly suggest that if you consider using short put option strategies as part of your trading portfolio, that you keep these positions to a minimum and control the risk, potentially by using credit spreads if you have an account that's under $25,000. Again, short put option strategies should be viewed as one of the leading candidates for covered call synthetic strategies. Final thoughts. 
Well, congratulations on finishing this book. It's quite an accomplishment if you made it this far and one that many investors did not reach. I'd even wager to say that just in 10% or less of people who started reading or listening to this book made it to the end where you are now. You should be very proud of yourself. It's my sincere hope that this book was both enlightening as a read, as well as a confidence boost in believing that you can and are now even potentially obligated based on the data to be able to beat the market performance with less risk. It's not some mythical unicorn, but it does take a healthy dose of discipline and consistency. Options trading presents one of the most exceptional financial opportunities for investors like you and me. I encourage you to use what you've learned in this book as the foundation from which to keep pushing forward and exploring new option strategies and new ways of generating income. Until next time, happy trading. Thanks for listening to the Option Alpha podcast. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a rating or comment. Plus, you can get everything. Free email updates for future shows, transcripts, video tutorials, case studies, and more. Just visit our website at optionalpha.com. All right, so that's a wrap for this week's podcast episode on Option Alpha. And before you go, let's keep the conversation going. If you enjoyed this week's reading of the audiobook for Mastering Covered Calls, please let me know. Connect with me on your favorite social media platform and let me know what questions you have, ideas, thoughts that came to mind after listening to today's show. I also want to let you know what we've got coming up and what we've been working on. We are working on a wonderful podcast that's going to drop next week with a very special guest as we talk about the misbehaviors of markets. And this couldn't have come at a better time because we've recently experienced and continue to experience lots of volatility in the market. And what's really cool about this interview that we have coming up with Richard Hudson is that we actually discussed what was going to happen kind of before it happened. Now, we didn't know the timing and the magnitude of all this but we had talked about where the markets were when we did this recording right before markets started to top out in 2020. So you definitely don't want to miss next week's episode in my interview with the co-author of The Misbehaviors of Markets, and that is an exclusive interview with Richard Hudson. So as always, I truly hope that you guys enjoyed today's show and got at least one thing out of it that you can apply right now to help you consistently play smarter, more profitable trades. Again, until next time, happy trading.